Good morning. It's uh, great to be able to open the Word of God with you uh, this morning because there is treasure in the pages of Scripture. It's not buried treasure, though. He was buried, but he is risen and buried no more. But he remains a valuable treasure, more valuable than any you can imagine. Jesus Christ is better than any hero you can have, and the Gospel of John works tirelessly to convince you of that proposition's truth. Now, if you were a Jewish person who lived at the time the Gospel of John was written, you would have put a lot of weight on Moses and the law. Moses would be your hero, someone whose life you would want to imitate, and someone whose law you'd want to keep. Now, the Gospel of John would take issue with your holding up Moses as a hero, because if your value of Moses kept you from valuing Jesus, then your truth would be misplaced. And although we don't generally hold up Moses as a hero in the way they did, although I think he's one of my heroes of the faith as well, the Gospel of John still demands that we let go of the value of any celebrity other than Jesus the Messiah, because only in Jesus is the glory of God truly seen. It's exactly what, what Moses wanted to see, we see in Jesus. Now, I've been working for the last, I don't know how many years, on studying the, uh, the Gospel of John and, the, and how the Son of Man works in the Gospel of John. I've been writing a scholarly work that, uh, that uh, is, I've made a lot of progress on, but I've, lo- I've got a long way to go. I feel like I've, uh, I- I've made a good base camp at Mount Everest, but I haven't started up the, uh, the mountain yet. Um, but it takes a lot of work just to get there. And uh, hopefully I won't slip along the way. The Gospel of John, uh, this, is, this is the sort of thesis that I'm going to be arguing this week and next, that the Gospel of John proves the supremacy of Jesus over Moses and every hero of the faith, by the way, by showing that Jesus is the Son of Man, the one to fulfill God's prophetic plan, to reveal God's glory, and to rescue humanity. And recognition of this supremacy is a necessary part of faith in Jesus as Messiah. Now, not everyone recognizes that he's greater than Moses, for instance, but it still means that we must recognize Jesus' supremacy, that he is our treasure. The Gospel of John's purpose statement is well known. I think just about anyone you would ask uh, who has read the Gospel of John would probably go to this verse, John 20, verse 31. But these, meaning the signs, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. There's a lot there. The purpose of the Gospel of John seems clear enough here at the outset, at first reading, but we often take for granted that we understand what is meant by each of the phrases in this purpose statement, especially the content of the faith is described here as that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, because there are lots of ideas, and not all of them biblical, about what Messiah means, it is easy for people to be confused about who Jesus is. 
And this was uh, true in Jesus' day. It's true in our day. Jesus knew himself that a certain understanding of the term Messiah would lead to his early capture and death. So he didn't use it of himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. You will notice that uh, when you read the Gospels and you find uh, someone calling Jesus Christ, say, for instance, Peter, uh, after the transfiguration, they'll say, you're the Christ. Jesus doesn't say, no, you're wrong. But he says, don't tell anyone until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So he keeps calling himself Son of Man. And I think there's a reason for that that we will see. John 12, 34, Jesus has just said, you will have to see the Son of Man lifted up. And it's that pun, lifted up, meaning lifted up as in on the cross lifted up, as well as lifted up as in glorified. There's a lot of irony in the Gospel of John. He's just said that about the, about the Son of Man being glorified that way. And in 1234, the crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ that is, the Messiah, is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? That's the title of our two-week series, Who is this Son of Man? Now, I already mentioned that some years ago I started researching how the Son of Man is used in the Gospel of John. And I noticed something interesting about this expression in John that I hadn't seen elsewhere in the other Gospels, that the Son of Man appears often in comparisons between Jesus and Moses in the Gospel of John. Now, it appears to me that John uses the Son of Man, he calls himself this in the Gospel of John, to link Moses and Jesus as he develops this portrait of Jesus as both Messiah and prophet like Moses. The Son of Man is the central link around which all of the other things that are said about Jesus in the Gospel of John is wrapped, so to speak. This week, I'd like to tell you a little bit about how Son of Man appears in John and also a little bit about the comparison between Jesus and Moses. And then we'll try to unpack some of those implications next week as we look at particular passages in the Gospel of John. See, Jesus is superior to Moses in every way, and Moses himself would agree. But in the world in which the Apostle John wrote, Moses had such a standing in the popular religious viewpoint that John had to prove this superiority. Have you ever noticed how the Bible never just makes claims? There's always something to support the claim. Jesus says, I'm God, believe in me. He doesn't just say it, he does things. There are seven signs in the Gospel of John which prove this contention. And the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. See, the Bible doesn't just make claims, it backs them up. And John, the apostle who wrote this Gospel, is no exception. Now, John has to prove this superiority... And even as Christians, we must still maintain Jesus' supremacy over all things. So there are lessons that we can learn from the Gospel of John by exploring these ideas. 
Now, of course, we got to start with some statistics because what would a professor do without statistics? <laughs> 82 times in the New Testament, the Son of Man phrase appears in reference to Jesus of Nazareth, most frequently in the Gospels, once in Acts, and twice in Revelation. I've given you a listing of the passages in which the expression Son of Man appears. And it appears 13 times in the Gospel of John. And none of those 13 times, by the way, is it, uh, is it exactly the same as it is in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's always different than the way the, those expressions are handled there. Not different as in disagreement different, but simply a different perspective. There's one exception about it appearing in the Gospels. There's one time in Acts chapter 7, verse 57, where Stephen says he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God just before he's martyred. Now, since Jesus uses Son of Man so frequently of himself, we've got to understand what Son of Man means if we want to know who Jesus is. In fact, it's the question John wants his readers to ask about Jesus. Who is this Son of Man? See, the crowd can't reconcile their popular conception of who Messiah is or who they think He should be with the kind of Messiah that the Son of Man is, according to Jesus. Jesus' reply to the crowd, of course, points to the fact that the Son of Man is also the light of the world the one who reveals God's glory to, to His people and to people in general. So to understand the Son of Man the way Jesus uses it, we've got to turn back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. When Jesus says, the Son of Man, He points to a particular passage in the Old Testament, Daniel 7, 13. This was a passage written in the context of exile. Now, I've, I've got I've to try to give you an idea of what this means for the people of Israel and the context into which Jesus comes. Daniel was one of the youth taken into exile in Babylon in 605 B.C. And as a prophet, he looks to the Word of God for his understanding of what God is doing in his people, even though they're in exile. They had gone into exile because they had failed to keep the covenant with Yahweh. They had done wickedly. They had done evil. They had failed in their responsibility as a priest nation, and God then took them into exile, just like He said through Moses. Moses said, look, if you don't keep this, uh, keep this covenant, Deuteronomy 28, there's going to be a whole cycle of discipline that I put on you, and eventually I'm going to take you away with people who don't even speak your language. And so, uh, in the generation before, Jeremiah had written the answer to Daniel's question. Jeremiah 25, 11 says, they will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then Daniel, as he's thinking about this in exile, chapter 9 says, I observed in the books the number of years for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. The 70 years of desolation in the prophecy then gives way to 70 weeks of years in God's plan. And the emphasis in chapter 9 of Daniel is 
God is still in control. Even though his people have been shattered, even though there's no one on the Davidic throne, God is still in control. Now, for a Jewish person in the 6th century before Christ, this punishment would seem universe-altering and insurmountable. You just cracked open the earth when you took us into exile, when you destroyed our temple, and when you removed a Davidic descendant from the throne. And with the losses of divine blessing and the temple worship and the kings in David's line, the need for rescue from above is keenly felt. There's nowhere else we can turn. There's nothing historical that we can do. There's nothing left of David's kingdom. And the exile is when what's called the apocalyptic style of writing begins to appear most frequently in the Bible. Because apocalyptic writing emphasizes God is still in control. Now, the word apocalyptic comes from our Greek word apokalupsis, which means revelation. And if you look it up in the Greek, it says revelation. Uh, But when you say revelation in this sense, you mean the kind of revelation that we're talking about in the book in the New Testament by that name. Notice also that it is singular revelation. Now, the apocalyptic style of writing usually follows a certain type of pattern. God gives a dream or a vision to a prophet. Sometimes it involves a direct encounter with God or they see him on the throne. And these dreamlike visions are the typical mode of expression in apocalyptic literature. Now, usually, God sends an angel to interpret the the vision to the prophet. Interestingly, in the book of Revelation, it's Jesus who explains some of the visions as well. Now, Daniel and Revelation are two really good examples and important examples of this kind of writing in the Bible, but there are others uh, scattered throughout. But this is why in biblical apocalyptic literature, there are often visions or explanations of those visions which appear uh, like a specific number, like 70 years or 70 weeks or a specific order of events like a succession of empires. This is in line with the assurance that God is in control when it looks at, uh, from the human perspective, like the world is falling apart. And when God shakes the established order of the universe, He's doing it for a purpose. He does it to restore His glory and to rescue the faithful. The final restoration of God's glory to its proper ascendancy in the human race will happen when God fulfills His promises to Abraham. So when we read Daniel chapter 7, we see just such a pattern. There's a vision given to Daniel parallel to the vision that's given to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. You remember this? Chapter 2, there's this statue. It's a beautiful thing. Chapter 7 are these horrible beasts. Now, if you think about this, chapter 2 is from the Babylonian point of view, right? Beautiful succession of empires. And when you look at it from God's point of view in chapter 7, they're just... Vicious beasts. 
The savagery of people in each generation is laid bare for judgment by the Ancient of Days, the Father. The vision terminates with verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The answer from God to the beast empires is a human being who will rule the world according to the purpose for which God originally created people. Recall that man was created to rule the world, and we've failed to do so, haven't we? Yet this one like a son of man of the vision is more than just a human being because this human being is presented before God and all humanity serve this one being in an everlasting kingdom. His righteous kingdom is the answer to all the other wicked, failed, beast-like kingdoms before him. So in verse 13, the son of man is the agent of God's plan for the culmination of all of human history. Now, we have to say all of this in background to that expression because when we come to the expression in the New Testament, Jesus always calls himself the Son of Man. Now, literally, the Son of the Man, but for stylistic reasons, we don't translate that second article there. This is only for the Greek students. Okay. Uh, if you were in my Greek class, I'd talk about Apollonius's canon, I'd talk about the anaphoric article, and of course by this time you guys are falling asleep, so I'll, I'll move on from there. But my point is, when he says, the Son of Man, everyone knows who you're talking about. Okay, just like if you said, where were you when the towers came down? No one would have to say, what towers? Right? You'd say... The World Trade Center towers, of course, you know, if somebody said that. What? Oh, oh, I didn't know what you meant. No, no one have said, would have said that. If he says, the son, I'm the Son of Man, what he's saying is, you know that guy from Daniel 7, chapter, chapter 7, verse 13? They, they would probably have said, verse 13, because they don't know what verses are, but anyway. <laughs> um, they would have said, oh, yeah, we know which, which Son of Man you're talking about. So Jesus never had to say which one. So when Jesus says, the Son of Man, any person listening to him in his day would know what he meant. In fact, this is surprising, especially since, as nearly everyone admits, in the New Testament, the Son of Man has the force of a title from a Greek point of view. That's because in the Old Testament, it's not a title. It's just this person in a vision. Now, I have to tell you this because many people, many critics of the Bible complain that the Son of Man, this expression in the New Testament, is, was misunderstood by the Greek-speaking church as they translated the sayings of the Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking Jesus into Greek. But wait a minute. He's the only one to call himself that in the New Testament. 
And the fact that the church didn't begin calling Jesus the Son of Man in the other parts of the New Testament, the exception of Stephen, and he didn't get long to preach, shows that they, that they did not misunderstand what Jesus said. It means that they faithfully preserved what Jesus said about himself, even when it wasn't what they expected him to say. And why don't you just call yourself Messiah? Well, if I called myself Messiah, they'd kill me too quick. And I've got a plan. So when Jesus speaks of himself in all the Gospels, he refers to himself this way. And especially when he speaks of his mission and destiny. You think about Mark 10.45, which we've studied before. Uh, this is the key verse of the Gospel of Mark, some people say. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A lot of Son of Man sayings that in the Gospels in general that focus on Jesus' self-sacrificial death. Now, what's remarkable about the Son of Man sayings in the Gospel of John is that they always appear in close proximity to comparisons between Jesus and Moses. That's another factor that we need to be involved with here to understand the Son of Man in the Gospel of John. I want you to notice that the Gospel of John makes explicit comparison between Jesus and Moses at the very outset of the book. And the first 18 verses are commonly called the prologue or the introduction to the book. The last two verses say this, For the law was given through Moses, John 1.17. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Law, grace. Jesus, Moses. No one has seen God at any time. Moses didn't. Well, he did. Show me your glory. Well, no, I'll have to put you like in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by you. You see my backside, but you won't see my face. No one has seen God at any time. But Jesus, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He, Jesus, has explained Him, the Father. So there's a direct comparison between Jesus and Moses. That's part of John's agenda in writing the Gospel of John. And there's a direct comparison between the Son of Man and Moses. In John chapter 3, perhaps you know this passage. It's a famous, famous passage. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. It's often been uh, said that uh, Moses, when he ascended up, on Mount Sinai to get the law, people were saying, yeah, Moses ascended to heaven. He said, well, not quite. Okay, it was heavenward, you know, towards heaven, but he didn't actually get there, right? But he who descended from heaven is the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent, the next verse goes on to say, in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, it's that lifted up that I'd like to explore next week as one of the themes that emerges from the Gospel of John's Son of Man sayings. So why does John make this comparison? And what difference does it make to us? Of course, what I want you to see from this is that Jesus is of such value that you need to drop everything else and go after Him. That's why the comparison is made. How do you show, here's the question that I'm asking, I'm trying to answer this question. How do you show that Jesus is better than Moses without disrespecting Moses? 
See, God's law given through Moses is good and right and true. You see that in the other parts of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul specifically says so. Jesus and the apostles object not to the law or to its use, but to its misuse. God used Moses to give the law to his people, so the problem isn't the law, the problem is the human heart. The implication that the crowd uh, makes in their question about Messiah, then, has to do with our Son of Man comparison. Now, there's, I think, two reasons why Jesus would use this term, Son of Man, rather than using Messiah. The first, of course, as I've already mentioned, is the potential for misunderstanding. It's an enormous potential. Uh, we've already said that, uh, uh, that if he had said that he was the Messiah too soon, he would have been attacked and killed too soon. But to understand Messiah the way Jesus wants you to understand Messiah, you've got to join the term to the expression Son of Man. See, when we join Messiah to Son of Man, and we look at what Son of Man does and is in the Gospels, we find the suffering servant. Now, the second reason, of course, that Jesus used the Son of Man as a self-designation has to do with its global reach. Not Messiah, but Son of Man. Messiah and Son of Man. And you have to understand Messiah the way Jesus wants you to understand it through the lens of the Son of Man. Here's why. When you talk about just the Messiah, you're really only talking about a descendant of David who will have a throne. Now, for Jesus... That's not going to do, is it? Because the Great Commission says, go and make disciples of all the nations, not just Israel. So if you were to only take a, a Jewish expectation of what Messiah is in the first century, then you would want to limit the scope of the gospel only to Jewish people. And Jesus says, I'm not going to let you do that. You're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and then even to the remotest part of the earth, says Acts 1.8. And so Jesus wants to ensure that his followers don't limit the scope of the Great Commission. It's always been God's purpose and God's plan to rescue both Jews and non-Jews the same way by faith. The gospel is, as the Apostle Paul says, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Yet there were also Jewish people who came to faith in Christ in the first decades of the New Testament times. And these were those with good intentions who wanted to uphold the honor of Moses. You would naturally think so, that if Jesus is the prophet like Moses, then you'd want to uphold Moses, wouldn't you? Acts 15.1 says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch, and began preaching, uh, began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I want to emphasize, these are well-meaning Jewish Christians. These are people who are born-again people, but they've got the gospel wrong. And 
They have good intentions, but they still have it wrong. Under God's leading, of course, the apostles rejected this position and insisted that salvation is by faith apart from adherence to the Mosaic law. Here, circumcision being the kind of atomistic reduction of the, of the commands to one. Uh, Paul objects to this as works of the law. By works of the law shall no flesh be justified, he says in chapter 3. So how do you show that Jesus is better than Moses without disrespecting Moses? Do you just throw these people out of the church? I don't think so. You reason with them from the Scriptures, and that's what the apostles did. So the Gospel of John answers this question by showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses and the prophets promised as God spoke through them. Jesus responded to those who claimed to follow Moses this way. And here Jesus is talking, I think, to unbelievers. Don't think that I will accuse you before the Father. This is John 5, 45 through 47. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Misplaced object of faith, right? For if you believed Moses, but you don't, you would believe me but you don't. For he wrote about me. Okay, if you want to know about me, read the law. Here I am. But if you will not believe his writings, that is Moses, how will you believe my words? If you're not going to take the Torah seriously, wow, what else are you going to do? Now, this has enormous implications for followers of Jesus. Faith in Jesus is the proper outworking of faith in Moses' writings. Now, I know that doesn't strike you as, as important because you're Christians. You've had the whole Bible for all your lives. But the New Testament never attacks Jewish people for being Jewish. The condemnation the Bible levels against every person regardless of their race or background, is that people reject God in a relationship with Him. That rejection is manifest in a refusal to trust God through Jesus Christ. If you don't believe His writings, how will you believe me? So, what difference does recognizing this superiority of Jesus make? When we read the Gospel of John, here's the difference it makes. God is calling us to understand that Jesus is the greatest most valuable gift God could give the world. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God's glory. And that needs to make a difference in every person's life. A recognition of value changes what you say and do. And you know the biblical word for value is love. God wants us to love Jesus more than anything else. If you love Jesus more than anything else, everything else will work its way out, won't it? Because God will reveal His glory in your life. So here's the difference that it makes. Now, Jesus Himself says this. Now, you've read John 3.16, but you've got to keep reading in that passage. Of course, you've got to read before that, 3.14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. God gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. 
verse 16 says, But here's the problem of not loving God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, John 3.19 says, And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. This is the word love. This is the word agapao. Can you believe that? So love isn't always a, self, a self-sacrificial love. Sometimes it's a love here in 319. It's a love that sacrifices what's good and right. Love is primarily neither emotion nor decision. To love means to value something as more important than something else. And the object of love is the object of value. And love motivates decisions. See, so when love motivates God to give His Son for us, that's a good thing because God is revealing His glory. But when we love the darkness rather than the light, we're refusing to accept it. If a person's love for an unworthy or wrong object, here it's called the darkness, the person will live in a way that values the wrong object. The decisions that person makes will be to sacrifice what's right and good for, in place of what's wicked and what's evil. See, men loved the darkness rather than the light, and here's the evidence, for their deeds were evil. Jesus said to them, Chapter 8, verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. If you love the father, you'll love me. See, the way Jesus replies to his opponent's rejection of his person and message is this contrary to fact. If God were your father, but he isn't, you would love me, but you don't. That's why you're trying to kill me. But if you love God, if you value God and his plan, you will value Jesus. If you don't value Jesus, the fact that you don't is evidence that you don't value God. It's simple logic, isn't it? Very simple. If you don't love Jesus, you don't love God. So the challenge that the early church is, is struggling with here, especially among Jewish people, is the struggle to value Jesus over everything else, over Moses, over the priesthood, over the sacrifices. And this is, this is dovetailing, I think, well with, uh, uh, with Pastor Bruce's study in the book of Hebrews, whose argument also is to show you the superiority of Jesus. Just like the book of Colossians as well, the superiority and supremacy of Jesus. See, look at the, again at the, at the purpose of the Gospel of John. These signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. See, if you recognize... Jesus as the Messiah, the way He wants you to through the lens of the Son of Man, then you will value and recognize Jesus as Messiah in the truest sense. This means you see Him as supremely valuable, more valuable than any other, and trust in Him. 
the life that flows from him is what saves you and sustains you. The Christian life is lived the same way in getting saved as it is in being saved. The same life in relationship to God where his glory is revealed in the life you receive from him. So the Gospel of John is asking us, love Jesus, love God, drop every other hero, even the ones that are good, even Moses must be put in his place as a servant of God, not as a quasi-God. Now, we don't worship, hero worship Moses that way, but we've got plenty of other heroes, don't we? We've got plenty of other things that we worship. And the Gospel of John is telling us, you've got to let it go. You've got to hang on to Jesus. You must value Him above all else. And next week, we will show you why Jesus as the Son of Man is so much better than Moses. He didn't just walk on the water. He didn't just part the Red Sea. He walks on the water. He didn't just send manna. He is the manna. And uh, things like that. But you'll have to come back next week for the whole list. <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the absolute grace and mercy that you've poured out on us, that you've revealed yourself to us in Jesus, that you've allowed us to come to faith in him, that you have uh, given him as a sacrifice as we celebrated in our communion this morning. We ask that you will show us how to love Jesus, how to value him, above all else in this life or the next so that we may properly reflect who you are and that you will be glorified and that your son will be glorified by receiving all the credit because all of our trust is in him and him alone. Bless us now with your favor as we go for we ask in Jesus' name our Savior, the Son of Man. Amen.